It's Monday, August 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Hoping to calm fears of an impending U.S. recession after a wild ride in the financial markets last week, President Trump's top economic advisors took to the Sunday talk shows to tout how good the economy is. Former Vice President Joe Biden also continues his presidential campaign, avowing to cooperate with Republicans, and Elizabeth Warren is surging in the polls. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, kids aren't playing enough sports. The cost of youth sports has skyrocketed, parents complain of bad coaches, and kids just aren't having fun. The average kid today spends less than three years playing a sport and quits by age 11. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios, joins us for why kids aren't sticking with youth sports. Finally, the latest baby monitors promise a bevy of new ways to watch your child while they sleep, but sometimes they can add more fear and anxiety. Some parents are catching ghostly images next to their babies at night and struggle to explain them. One motion detecting monitor caught human-like figures floating around a crib. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I don't see a recession at all. Consumers, first of all, they're working. The employment numbers are terrific. Second of all, they're working at much higher wages. Third of all, they're spending. And fourth of all, interestingly, they are saving even while they're spending. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me back. Two of President Donald Trump's top economic advisors were all over the Sunday talk shows trying to calm fears that the U.S. may be sliding into a recession. White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro and Chief Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow were all about trying to you know, list off anything positive that they could about the economy under the president. But we had a really rough week on the stock market. There are tons of fears of a recession that might be coming There's nine key economies throughout the world that are going through a slump, also pushing fears of a U.S. recession even further. So people are getting kind of freaked out about this. That's right. We know that the president is very concerned about the potential for a recession. He seems to be pretty set on the idea that if there is a recession in the next six months, that it would be detrimental for his reelection chances. And so we've seen him doing a lot of things to push back at this sort of on two fronts. The first one would be trying to actually prevent a recession. So I talked to some White House sources that tell me that the president's efforts to try to get the Fed not to raise rates uh, was really aimed at trying to prevent a recession. And then his decision to cancel some of the tariffs on China is also an effort to try to prevent a recession, or at least if there is one, make it less painful for the American consumer at Christmas time, which when those tariffs would have been really hitting people's pocketbooks. The second thing that we see the president and the White House doing that you talked about here was trying to sort of shape the message or shape the narrative. So when there's a recession, lots of people feel it and have it personally affect them, but most people don't. And so it becomes a sort of mood thing. Do you feel like your community or your neighborhood or people you know are being affected? Do you think that it's hurting the country as a whole? And so we see them trying to push back at that narrative and outline all the reasons why they say there isn't one. So sort of a don't believe what you may be feeling in your pocketbook. Listen to us. We're telling you it's really not that bad. 
consumer spending is uh, is up and confident consumer confidence is still kind of high. I mean, we're kind of keeping everything afloat. But obviously, he, going back to campaign mode, he says, well, if you elect a Democrat, everything's going to go down the tubes. But uh, you're right. I mean, this is kind of a tricky situation. If anything goes south, Democrats are going to jump on it right away. And but the president has all of this. You know, he's got, he's so impervious to a lot of this stuff. I mean, he can just say, well, the Democrats are, are against me. The, the media is against me. China's hurting us. You know, he, he has all this stuff in his back pocket to throw out there as, as excuses for the economy going down. Well, when you look at poll numbers and you look at voters who are sort of undecided or maybe a little ambivalent to the 2020 election, they seem like they could vote for Trump again. Those are voters who are identifying the economy as his chief accomplishment. So there are people saying that they think he's doing a good job on the economy. And that's really the only place that we see a majority of voters saying they think the president's doing a good job. If the economy starts to go south, it'll be very difficult for him to argue that it's anyone else, especially after he's taken so much credit for the economy in the last two years. And if he goes upside down on the approval numbers of the economy, he's going to be out of things to say he did well. I mean, this is really his one big accomplishment to tout on the campaign trail. Uh, He's going to have to start looking for something else. Now, that said, um, he's very, very clear that his campaign strategy for the next year is attack and malign his opponent and convince the public that whoever the Democrat is, is just way worse than he is and would do uh, harm to America. And that may work even without some of his own accomplishments to tout, but that's a very difficult message to push for an entire year. Let's move on to some 2020 Democrat news. Joe Biden still remains the front runner. He's getting a little flack. He was at some uh, a fundraiser. He said that there's still a lot, an awful lot of good Republicans out there. And he said, you know, remember when we got in trouble with the administration, who was sent to Capitol Hill to fix it? Me, because I know how to respect the other team. He's playing this middle of the road thing. I'm highly electable. I can work with the other side. We can get things done. There's a lot of people on the left that don't really like that. Uh, at the same time, Elizabeth Warren has just kind of surged in the polls again, and she's coming up into second place. And her electability chances are, are growing also. There's some a new round of polls saying that she has a 57% chance of beating Donald Trump in the election. Joe Biden is decided to be an unapologetic centrist. And I think that we see Washington reporters making a frequent mistake when we assume that the electorate looks like what we see on Twitter. It doesn't there is still a good number of voters, Democratic voters in the country who want someone who's going to get along. They see sort of the uh, ruling by tweet and the name calling and the fighting in this administration as a real negative. And they don't want someone who's going to be a firebrand. They want someone who's going to put the fire out. And so Biden has decided to just try to own that, that he believes there are enough Democrats who feel the same way as him. I think that what we're going to see as we get closer and closer is kind of what you just described, a battle between that ideology and one that says the only way to beat Donald Trump is to be your own firebrand and start your own movement. And that's Elizabeth Warren. The Democratic voters are going to have to decide. I think reporters in in Washington and New York are maybe trying to guess a little too much about which one is going to win. And and we're going to see when we get to February and they start voting. (laughs) If anything, I think we can say that candidates like Biden, like Warren, like Bernie Sanders are being unapologetically who they are. They're putting forward their theory of the case and they're going to let voters decide. 
Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kids are just simply not having fun, and that could be a result of a bad coach, which is actually another focus. The coaching it's kind of twofold, like kids not having fun, which is either you know how the sports are being practiced, you know how serious it is, and then on top of that, lack of good coaches can also make things not fun and also you know send kids away. Joining us now is Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Kendall. Thank you for having me. When are we talking about youth sports in the country? There was a new survey that just came out that says that the average child today spends less than three years playing a sport and quits by age 11. Tell us a little bit more about this, Kendall. I think there's, there's multiple factors to take into account here. I think one is, as we all know, you know there's a lot more you know, technology available, a lot more screens. You have the rise of things like eSports. And so I don't believe eSports was considered a sport in this survey. I'm not positive. But I assume it wasn't, and therefore that you know that definitely explains some too to me, and that's that's you know we all know that that's the the childhood obesity epidemic, you know everything driving that. The other side is you know a, a large reason why more kids aren't playing sports is that low low income families are actually being priced out. And, and in short, we can get into more details, but in short, you know sports. If you think about the the pipeline from youth to middle school to high school to college to some people obviously end up going professional. It's all kind of getting sped up. And so you used to think of youth sports as fun, neighborhood stuff, you know, having fun with your friends. And then, you know, as you progress and you get older, it starts to get more serious. Well, that's just happening sooner now. And because it's getting more serious and more competitive, families are required to pay more money and they're required to travel to these tournaments states away. And so it's all getting sped up so fast and it's cutting people out way sooner than used to be the case. Let's go back to the survey that was done by the Aspen Institute and Utah State University. Why do parents say that their kids are getting out of sports by age 11? There seems to be three main things that are contributing to this. Kids are just simply not having fun. And that could be a result of a bad coach, which is actually another focus. The coaching cuts twofold, like kids not having fun, which is either, you know, how the sports are being practiced, you know, how serious it is. And then on top of that, lack of good coaches can also make things not fun and also, you know, send kids away. I'm sure the competitiveness gets into it and that could be under that category of lack of fun. And then you couple that with a coach that maybe is just doing it for a job. Maybe they're not interested in it all that much, or the team as a whole maybe isn't that good in the circuit that they're in. And I mean, it really can just contribute to a lot of people going through the motions and, and yeah, you're not having fun. You're not really learning anything new and you're not improving. You know, a kid right. is going to get bored of that real quick. There's maybe a clash, right? If you're a parent coaching your kids and you got other parents coaching their kids who are on these really intense teams and they're practicing and, and it's super competitive. Do you follow that lead? Do you lean more towards let's just have fun out here? Like, I think there's just this cultural shift happening that people are struggling with, which is like, how, how serious do we take sports? Do I start putting my kids in one sport, you know, starting in sixth grade so they can focus on that? Like, there's all types of research that shows that there's health risks involved there. So I think there's just a lot going on for for parents to have to try and, you know, wade through and navigate. From that survey, they said that travel is now the costliest feature in youth sports. And we all know that there's a lot of competitive travel teams so just the travel costs alone, and, and then on top of that, you know, there's all the equipment and, and all that other stuff, but travel is just a big chunk of this. Travel has become huge, and that's largely driven by these 
summer circuits or, or whatever season it is of travel teams, you know, going to these showcase tournaments and there's literally like mega complexes being built across the country to cater specifically to youth sports. There's a whole kind of not industry, but trend happening where there's like mega complexes being built. And then those towns basically become tourist towns for like oh, yeah. families coming in out of town every weekend to play in a baseball tournament. And now there's a, the economy in those towns is booming and they're becoming these kind of destinations for the, the youth sports families as they descend upon them every weekend. So it's this whole shift happening with tons of tournaments and, and families being able to and, and willing to pay and obviously spend their time, you know, driving every weekend to these big events. Look, I think one of the criticisms is, you know, this whole industry, obviously you're going to be able to prey on, if you want to use that word, parents, you know, you, oh, your kid's going to, you know, you, you have to invest in your kid. Like who, what parent is going to deny their kid the opportunity to play on the best team, to play the best competition? So that's kind of the criticism that these parents are getting wrapped into this world and, you know, they're never going to say no and they're going to, you know, do every team and every tournament. At the same time, like, I think there is just the reality, like, these events are kind of awesome, uh, and these complexes are kind of awesome, and, like, you know, the, the downside, again, is that not everybody can afford it, the, those complexes, like, they're spectacular. I mean, they're, like, more, I mean, some, some of those complexes are on the level of, like, professional sports stadiums, so it's really crazy, like, the infrastructure that's being built to cater to this kind of out-of-control, I think, $15 billion is the latest estimate industry of youth sports. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. He showed her a screenshot he had taken of their cocoon cam, and it showed what looked like a human-like figure from the baby monitor. It was kind of floating above the ground, looking over the baby who was sleeping upstairs at the time that he took the photo. And there were other images they found. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. Julie, I love all your articles, this intersection of family and tech. It's always something very relatable. But this new article caught my eye right away. My baby monitor is haunted. And this is all about parents catching images on their baby monitors, little ghostly images near their babies. And then kind of the real fear that it inspires in parents. You know, you you want nothing but the safety for your child and any little tiny thing can throw you off. So you have a couple of examples of people getting spooked out by things they've seen in their baby monitors. Start us off. Share some of those with us. Yeah, well, so I talked to one mom in Los Angeles and she was away from home. And when she came back one day, she found her husband sitting at the kitchen table and looking a little bit worried. And he showed her a screenshot he had taken of their cocoon cam. And it showed what looked like a human-like figure from the baby monitor. It was kind of floating above the ground, looking over the baby who was sleeping upstairs at the time that he took the photo. And there were other images they found. One that was like two figures looking over the baby. There was another one of looked like a whole family of kind of ghostly shapes. And it was always looking over the baby as the baby right. was sleeping in its, in its bassinet. The thing with this picture, though, is that these are motion cameras and there's colors associated with that. So... It looks like a person and it's supposed to be associated with movement. What the camera showed, it just said motion detected. And then, you know, you could see where that motion was by looking at the, at the colors. Now, this mom shared with me some other photos that they'd taken of, of the baby monitor when someone was in the room and when motion was detected from a 
you know, real human being. And she'd showed me a photo of her husband rocking the baby, one of the baby that, you know, when the baby was kind of awake or, you know, moving in the bassinet. And what those look like were just kind of, you know, you could see the the human being, you know, and then you could see some colors sort of around the person, not in the shape of a person, but just kind of in the general area where the person was moving around. But it was, it didn't take on a sort of human-like form like you see in the photos wow, interesting. that she shared. So the big question, obviously, are the ghosts real or are people just jumping to conclusions? You reached out to Cocoon Cam. They blamed it on a bad installation. They said that this appeared that the Cocoon Cam was placed on a dresser rather than mounted on the wall above the crib. And they said that what the computer vision system tries to do is find a you know, location of movement to focus on and that what was likely... The scenario in this case was curtains billowing or lights or shadows that it detected as movement and then created these colorful forms. But, but you know, in this room, and you can see it in the photo, there there were no curtains or wooden blinds. Aha. Um, so what is it? I don't know. I mean, we didn't really get a very good explanation from the manufacturer. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what those images were. And then the flip side of this, and this is why I love your articles, because, you know, it's the only next logical thing to do. You contacted a paranormal investigator and they said, <laughs> yes. it definitely looks like we have some ghostly activity here. <laughs> yes. And you'd expect a paranormal investigator to say something like that. But I mean, he he actually gave me some helpful tips on, you know, when you see something like this, it's unexplained. There are, there are ways to try to test it out because depending on the positioning of one camera, you could see things that might appear one way in one camera. And so the best way to determine if something like this is actually a supernatural type of image is to set up multiple cameras at different angles focused in on wherever the object is. That way, if you're seeing the same thing from multiple objects, you can maybe jump to the conclusion that it is something unexplained. But if it is some effect of light, shadow, what have you, you know, you might not see it at all from a different angle. And another case that you mentioned in your story was uh, a Nest Cam alerted parents to motion in the baby's room and then they saw a closet door slowly open. So, okay. So after all of this, now speaking to parents, even seeing uh, reactions to the story online, maybe what do people think about, about it? Uh, and the two parents that you spoke to specifically for the story, did they think anything spooky was happening? On The parents I spoke to for the story definitely were worried that something spooky was happening and, and they'd each had some other experiences too, that I didn't have room to detail um, in the column. But, you know, a lot of the readers were very skeptical and thought there must be other logical explanations, especially about the closet door opening. You could certainly assume that there are other logical explanations for that. Maybe the closet door wasn't fully latched. You know, maybe the floors are uneven and it just, you know, like wasn't well built. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, you know, who knows? But I love um, it. I'm going to say they were ghosts. But the thing the <laughs> thing is, with a lot of these latest and, and newest baby monitors, that they're, they're causing a lot of anxiety for parents with a lot of false alarms and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, and the point of, of this, other than it just being kind of a fun a fun read, is the downside of some technology is that it isn't always accurate in terms of what it's representing, and it sometimes has the opposite effect than what's intended. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.